Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where we go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, ASEAN Innovation. I'm your host, Paolo Pino. And we're back with another special call. And this time around, you know, we're bringing back a familiar voice. He's been on our show many times as a co-host, but this time around, having him on the guest seat. To our longtime listeners who have been with us since season one, you may remember that he did a episode with us as a guest, albeit it was a short episode, but it was definitely a jam-packed one. And we're doing that again this time around. He's none other than our founding managing partner, England. So he's here to talk about our Fund3 fundraise of 516 million US dollars. And obviously with that, there's certainly a lot of big ideas that come along with it. And, you know, a lot of perspectives that we want to share with our listeners out there. So we're here to do just that. Before you go on call, be sure to give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platforms. And stay tuned for our latest insights on our Twitter at InsigniaVC and Instagram at Insignia underscore VC. Now let's get into the call. Minglan, how are you? Welcome back to the show. Now you're in the guest seat, at least for this call. Good morning, Paolo. No, thanks for having me back. And I've been listening to all the great podcasts that you have been conducting. And it's really breathtaking to see some of the great content and some of the great insights shared by our founders over the many episodes. Happy to be back. Happy to have you back. And hopefully we can have more episodes where you co-host as well and some more awesome guests down the line. But for this call in particular, I wanted to talk about your, your own views of the region with the fundraise, as I mentioned, and also all the challenges that were experiencing at the moment in this current environment. And I wanted to kick things off with that in mind, right? And that question being, amidst all the challenges and uncertainties in the current environment, what do you think will be the long-term drivers for Southeast Asia innovation? And what do you think will keep all the capital coming into the region in the long term? That's a good question to start. I must first say that I think we live in turbulent times. I mean, if you look at in the past 12, 18 months, I think you see escalated tensions and spark uncertainties. You have inflation, you have the pandemic has not fully ended. And of course, you have tech valuations in some correction in both US and China markets. So I think you have seen a lot of global turmoil or uncertainty. And I think the good news is that Southeast Asia remains a bright spark amongst the uncertainty, right? In fact, I think Singapore has, has seen inflow of capital, ideas, talent, as people flock to safety. I think this is government statistics, but I think we see of the family office that's set up here, which has grown exponentially, 45% are from Greater China. I do think that there is a flock to safety in Singapore. That's one factor. I think the other factor is also the rise of ASEAN, right? So especially Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, I think the middle class rising, digital economy progressing, I think certainly has been a bright spark and inspiration for many entrepreneurs. And if you look at where technology trends have drifted to, right? You see US obviously has been a leader in tech model innovation, right? So deep tech and technology-based innovation, I would say. And China has been really the leader in business model-based innovation. And if you combine that, obviously the next S-curve they see is, is Southeast Asia, right? Where you can combine a majority of business model innovation addressing a large market, coupled with some enablers of tech innovation. So I think that becomes a very interesting combination. I do see that, you know, it's a golden age of Southeast Asia in the next 10 years, even with the background of global inflation, US-China tension. And I think if you look at Southeast Asia, it's very vibrant, right? Not only in technology, but in the whole uh, business community, in wealth creation, capital formation, very vibrant. We have been visited by an exponential number of investors, family office, in entrepreneurs with new ideas, executives from big tech companies looking to join the next thing. 
it's order magnitude of three to four times in the past six months compared to a year ago. So I think that's certainly a good trend. And I think it's, it's great we are presented with a once-in-a-decade opportunity to capture outlier returns in Southeast Asia. I think we want to remain quite nimble and flexible in our strategy. I think the saying is, hey, you know, we don't want to invest in the flock. We want to invest in the best bird in the flock. And that's always been our philosophy. So a couple of themes there that actually, it's not our first time encountering these ideas, you know, the flock to safety. We've written about that back in 2019 with the whole uh, WeWork thing. And now, you know, that, that theme has sort of come back with everything that's happening. ASEAN is still strong in terms of fundamentals, a lot of digitalization that is, you know, not just financial or, or economic in nature, but really fundamentally changing the way people do things. And then you also talked about tech innovation and business innovation coming together here in the region, which is something that we've been seeing since even before the pandemic. And, you know, Southeast Asia has been a leader in marrying the best of both worlds. And the golden age, people have been talking about that since 2021, since 2020, since the whole pandemic-driven digitalization wave. And, you know, even with the current environment, we don't see it slowing down anytime soon. And it's really just a matter of how long you're staying here in the region. And definitely with this new fund, doubling down on that long-term commitment. So it's great to see that things are still heading towards a certain momentum. And I guess... In that context, how exactly do we find those birds in that flock that you mentioned, right? You want to find the best birds in the flock. What defines the best birds? Yeah. So that's a great question. And, and Paulo, you have been with me in this journey of talking to some of them as well. So I think there's no hard and fast rule, but we try to summarize some heuristics. Lah. And we summarize it in like the eight A's of us innovation, which you and I jointly came up with full credit to you. I think the first is really, I think we see a lot of companies trying to be the X for Y in Southeast Asia, those have done okay, but I wouldn't say they are breakout success. I think the analogy is like a clone, mutant, and new species, right? So the clones like Alibaba for X, Airbnb for Y have met with moderate success because you can't really paint Southeast Asia with one brushstroke. It requires a lot of navigation and understanding of, you know, what happens in Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, specifically culturally, payment systems, language way of doing business. So it requires a more ASEAN first and organic approach. When I say clones, it's essentially the copycat model, right? You replicate mm. things, solutions to local problems. Mutants, you know, you sort of have a local problem, but you sort of adapt it to Southeast Asia. I think the more interesting companies that we're seeing is the new species, right? Where it is finding a Southeast Asia first problem and then finding solutions around it. I have a great example here, which is company that we'll be privileged to partner with called Fishlog. It's Fish, like F-I-S-H-L-O-G, right? Which provides essentially uh, software, like end-to-end -end software for fish farmers, all sorts of supply chain software, financing software, ERP. And I think the counterintuitive point here is that it looks unsexy, but it's complex, right? So if you look at the quadrant of where returns are coming from, right? There is sexy and complex, right? That's probably Web3, right? So, you know, <laughs> a lot of ups and downs in Web3. But I think if you look at unsexy and complex, that's where actually where the returns are. And you look at the companies that fish lock, right? So from the outside, it looks unsexy because it's a very, like you want to roll up your sleeve to the fish farmers. But if you think deeper, like in, in Indonesia, the main diet is actually, you can't eat pork. Muslims can't eat pork, right? Fish is a big source protein. So that's point number one. Point number two is Indonesia is actually made up of many archipelagos. Logistics is complex, right? Supply chain, cold chain is super complex. Now, if you combine these two things, providing supply chain software is a complex but unsexy problem, but it is generally high gross margin and it is targeting a large addressable market. So I think that's one 
example where, hey, you can't really find these kind of opportunities. Because it's built on top of Indonesia's unique sort of situation. Yeah. It builds on top of Indonesia's specific situation. You have, a, you have an ASEAN first approach, you know, and the localization challenges offered by the region makes it a big moat against a more global, well-resourced leader. In fact, one of the global leaders looked at the company and said, oh, wow, I can never navigate this country because it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's archipelago and investing in the company in the later round after that. So, so it's kind of validates our thesis. And the good thing is for our listeners, if you want to learn more, like we just had Bayou, uh, who's the CEO of Fishlog on our podcast as well. So he really goes in depth into everything that England just shared. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, the second thing, I mean, the second A is really the A team, which is, I think, getting more obvious in a correction or a downturn. Right, because I think in a up market, you know, everybody tries, right? You can, everybody, you know, there's markets, flash of capital, capital efficiency generally is not talked about. You know, it's not too obvious who are the big operators because they all seem like good operators. But I think when capital is scarce, you really see who are the more resourceful and capital efficient operators, right? And I think we're starting to see a lot of these founders coming from big tech juggernauts, right? Where work at unicorns, they have learned how to go from zero to one to build a thousand people teams, run operations, lead business units, and they have the great foundations of company building. So I think we are starting to see a big wave of companies being formed by these people. I think the second wave is founders from other countries. I mean, one of the places that's most obvious is China. We're seeing a big wave of entrepreneurs from China come here to start companies. And I think the third one is, I mean, more obvious now is that, hey, the best and brightest who graduate from like Harvard Business School and Stanford Business School. I mean, it's now obvious that, hey, now I want to come back to Indonesia to, to start something. In 2011, this was not obvious. I think now it's getting obvious that, hey, instead of me staying after business school to join a multinational as a post-MBA executive, the odds of me starting a company and doing decently well is actually uh, quite good, right? And we're seeing many of these entrepreneurs emerge. I think we are still seeing some combinations of people who have worked at some of these big tech companies, then go to business school and then say, okay, I want to apply what I learned in these two places to do something interesting. So I think then, then, you know, there's different combinations, right? So that's the second piece. Third A is really about acceleration, right? So I think obviously now the market is, is getting got more capital scarce. I think there's increasing focus on gross profit, profitability, even economics. But I think if you are in a tech company, hey, you know, one of the key drivers is still growth, right? So, you know, you may not need to grow at like 20 times, 10 times, but if you are not growing, then you might as well run a, a company, right? So, you know, I think you still have to think about healthy growth. I think the focus is now healthy growth rather than growth at all costs. And I think like some of our companies are really able to do that, building very strong distributions at low cost, right? I think one example is a company I'm privileged to partner with called Super which is the leading social commerce player in second tier cities in Indonesia, which is very underserved, right? If you go to the first tier cities in Jakarta, you know, you have a lot of abundance of commerce options, right? Both online and offline. But if you go to the rural areas, which what Pindodo also discovered, it's very broken and fragmented. And it's the same thing like what Pindodo saw in China as in Indonesia. So we see that you know, they have been growing at breakneck speed by working with rural community leaders, mom and pop shop, and they are still maintaining pretty good unique economics and they are creating real livelihoods for their agents and group sellers and group buyers. So, so it's, it's, it's great. Steven even talked about this even back in 2020 when, when he came on our podcast, he already had this mindset of really healthy growth. And that's sort of been a foundational in terms of how Super has approached all of this as they've expanded so far. So I think, you know, it's really important for founders to already have that mindset 
from the get-go. Otherwise, it can be really hard to sort of adjust when they're already sort of deep in scaling, right? No, you're right. You're right. Because it's hard to change the DNA of a company, right? I think the great thing about Super is that, I mean, the DNA of the company is very, very capital efficient, very full goal from the start. They had to pivot a few times. As a result, they are always making sure that they are thrifty and capital efficient about how they use every dollar to produce the maximum result. So it's great. The next A is really agility, right? Which is, you know, more important than ever because, you know, I think one of the things that differentiate fast-growing tech companies and traditional incumbents is the ability to decide at 9 o'clock and execute by noon and being able to react to the market. Just to give an example, right? With the news of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, there were policy shifts made by the Chinese government to exports and imports from Taiwan yesterday. The nimble companies, especially those logistics and food space, literally pinged the whole board yesterday to take their go-to-market and the companies were nimble enough to reconsider certain go-to-market options. I think the second piece is this mindset shift from pure market-driven growth by just spending money on customer acquisition to a platform-driven growth, right? So getting the users to be more sticky. So I think one example is Ajite, right? Which started off as a market-driven adoption with getting users to try its first mutual fund product. But now there's blossomed into a multifaceted platform, right? Where you can still trade mutual funds, but I think majority now use the first product as a stock trading app. And then you can trade crypto. You can also, you know, deposit money in the bank. So you can do many things, right? EIPOs, margin trading, crypto trading, and the users are getting more sticky. So it's product-driven agility. I think you even mentioned that Ajay, although we, you know, as Insignia does with any of its investments, we look at, you know, different comparables in other markets, but Ajay has sort of blossomed into something that's ultimately very unique, a combination of many different things, right, that we've seen. Oh, no, exactly, exactly. No, I, I, think, I think that's indeed the case. The next A is really about accumulation of data, right? So I think we see a lot of advantages here for companies that are able to do that, right? You know, I give you an example of Caro, right? So just buying a car itself doesn't give a lot of data. I mean, it does give so how frequently they buy the car. And obviously, you can upsell insurance and loan products post that. But if you were to provide after sales to a car, like car wash is high frequency, buying car parts, you know, car repairs. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I'm guilty of that because I'm not a very good driver, right? So, <laughs> so I, I tend to go to the workshop quite often for small scratches here and there. As a result, a company like Caro collects a lot of data about me. Based on my engine sound, they can infer whether I'm a good driver or not and decides to upsell me the right policy, right insurance policy at the right price, given my driving skills. When the platform becomes self-evolving, like Caro, because it's collected, you know, the majority of data in Southeast Asia for car sales and car driver data, they can capture the whole adjacent services to the core business, right? Because if you think about when I sell my old car, the platform makes commission. I buy a new car, the platform makes commission. I buy a piece of insurance. That's another piece of revenue. And then I borrow money to finance the car. That's four. So four revenue streams and a very robust feedback loop on top of strong distribution. I think that is great model for sustainability and profitability. That's another one that's interesting. And C is obviously another example where he has mm -hmm. his expertise in gaming through Garena to upsell in e-commerce in Shopee. I think that's another classic case study where they have obviously better understanding of user preferences. I think the next A, which is a bit more interesting, is something we coined called Alpha Wolf. I think one of the things that we realized is that the best founders, we used to coin the term unstoppable, which is to say when they, when they see a wall, they climb on top of a wall, they dig a hole under the wall, 
they go around the world or they make friends in the world, right? But I don't think it quite captured what we really want to convey. So I think we coined this phrase called alpha which is, I think there's a desire and hunger. They're obsessed about winning. That's the feature they want to convey. The classic example is our founding father, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. He doesn't have a television at his home because, you know, he's single-minded on in Singapore, the best product it can be. And if you look at Bill Gates, right? I think in the early days, you recount stories of him taking out the radio in his car because he didn't want to get distracted in his drive from his home to work because he was thinking about Microsoft. And yes, I think that, that, that defines a lot of the great founders that we partner with. And in fact, the thing that we found is that for this Alpha Wolf, capital is always accessible to them. They don't need to raise money. Money comes to them because these are repeat founders. Usually these are people who have proven operating records. But beyond all that, they still have a desire to win, the hunger to be number one. And they're pretty unstoppable, right? So in a climate like this, there's a flight to quality. You're going to get the best companies built by this uh, Alpha Wolves. The truth is that they still select who they partner with. It used to be the case where, hey, you know, we decide who to partner with. There's still an element of that. But I think these Alpha Wolves have the privilege of choosing which venture investor they choose to partner with. And we certainly hope to be the partner of choice in terms of what we can do for them. The one thing that we do quite well is that now we have this ecosystem of, I would say, unicorn founders that really acts as a resource channel for you know, some of our younger founders, right? These folks that have built and run companies, you know, to billions, sometimes tens of tens of billions, in one or two cases, hundreds of billions market cap. And they're able to make introductions, not only that, guide them on some of the pitfalls. They're able to provide customer channels. That sometimes they also invest. And for us, it becomes a big flywheel, right? Because they mm-hmm. also refer us companies, they help us with due diligence. And they sometimes are the customers of the portfolio's products. So that's been great. I actually remember you mentioned this in another podcast before that, you know, one of the best measures of our success is how much are our founders willing to also invest with us or, you know, contribute to what Insignia does as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We just did a survey for this exercise. So the number was around 90, 94%. So like of 100 partners we we partner with, 94% are willing and able to invest in our fund and are keen to introduce us to their friends. So, I mean, we still have some work to do. It's not 100% yet. So we need to work on the 6%. I, I think we have been good partners generally to our founders. We have to work on the remaining 6%. I think that's, that's our next homework for Fund3. But I do think that one of the strongest value propositions that we hear is the ability to channel uh, resources from our vast network of global unicorn founders. That's certainly one thing that came up. So I think the next A is something that is probably more relevant today than one week ago, which is anti-fragile. <laughs> As I mentioned at the start, it's turbulent times, right? And I do think that within turbulent times, there's a need for caution, but there's never been a better time to build because there is limited resources, but you can turn crisis into opportunity. And any businesses that are anti-fragile are able to capitalize on that. I mean, what do I mean by anti-fragile? It essentially means that, hey, you know, you have a unbreakable balance sheet, right? You have strong gross profits, you have strong modes, high gross margins, you have self-fueling growth, and generally you have very diversified customer base, both geographically and sector. So essentially you have very strong modes and strong market positions. So that I think is definitely anti-fragile. And I think you are able to bounce back from adversity. I think that's one company that really sticks out on top in our portfolio. It's a company called Avang Tonight. I mean, we were happy to be partners when they were doing something else, right? But they quickly pivoted to blossom in the supply chain financing. And during COVID last year, year growth six times, their loan book 
uh, has blossom with crystal clear, very low MPL, best in class metrics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a difficult time for fintech lending, right? And supply chain financing wasn't an easy task. But I think companies like Amazon 9 and the founder Dino is very resilient. Are they able to overcome adversity, but also leveraging adversity as a source of growth for innovation? And I'm sure we'll see all oh, this US-China tension. We'll see some companies that are anti-fragile. And we love to be partners with them. The last A is actually a simple concept, but one that's hard to do, right? It's assiduous, right? It's all about, maybe it's a bit too complex a word, but really perseverance and hard work at the risk of giving out a trade secret. I always <laughs> if you want to see who are the best companies in Singapore, you just go to like Block 71 on a Sunday night at 10. Mm-hmm. See who else is there, right? Because building a company is hard work. And if you are not prepared to put in the hours, it's not going to happen. The company doesn't build by itself. So you go to Block 71 five years ago and see who is there at 10 p.m. on a Sunday night or Friday, Friday night, 11 p.m. It actually correlates with who are the top performing companies in the region. I still remember I, I did a walk with Aaron Tan of Caro at I think 6 a.m. a couple of times. I think we might have done one at 5 a.m. before. In the morning, right? I, I definitely done 6 a.m. 7 a.m. is very common. And at the risk of, you know, exposing another trade secret. One thing is I, I, and, and Paolo will laugh because, you know, <laughs> which is one test I do. I mean, I, I don't do it a lot nowadays, but I, I still do like once in a while. It's, and it's partially because my schedule is quite, quite packed. I, I ask about, hey, you know, come, come walk with me at 7 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, you, I, I, I sometimes I get instant reply. Boom, let's do it. And my admiration for the founder will go up by one notch. And then he shows up at 7, you know. Sometimes you will be here at like 6.45 and I'll be, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll run over now. <laughs> uh, and then usually we have a good chat, right? Uh, at 7 a.m. Air is fresh. So I think, I think you, you, you see a lot of hard work by founders and we are very happy to be part of that journey. Like I think the founders deserve all the credit. We're just their resource, but we're very happy for them and, and cheer them on when they're able to succeed. One thing to note about all these eight A's is that, you know, we didn't really come up with this out of thin air. This is actually things that we've learned working with the founders that, that we've been supporting through these past years, right? And just to recap for our listeners, so the eight A's, you know, ASEAN first, ATM, acceleration, agility, accumulation, alpha wolf, anti-fragile and assiduous. And all that you can actually check in our blog, review.nc.vc or in the book actually also as well, Navigating SE Innovation. But yeah, that's that's really a, a framework that we refer to or, or like to, you know, share with people when, when asked, you know, how do we find, again, to use England's metaphor, how do we find, you know, the best birds in the flock? How do we find those unstoppable founders as well? And obviously these things are easier said than done. And full credits to the founders. And speaking of finding Founders in, in the next decade of ASEAN innovation, right? And you mentioned in our press release, we, we wanted to look for these next decade sunrise sectors. And given that a lot of these sectors like Web3, healthcare, climate tech, agriculture, you know, require a lot of market education. Sometimes they, they can be difficult to, to really lay the groundwork for at times. What for you is the key to uncovering, you know, all these like early movers in these spaces? I must caveat there. The best way to find out which sector invest, you probably shouldn't talk to VCs like us because the entrepreneurs know where to build the next big company. I think we are pretty good at finding the entrepreneurs who want to build the next big company rather than to pick sectors. Obviously, we have some analysis, you know, some assumptions that certain sectors will be interesting given market trends, but we don't presuppose that the next big company will be built in that sector because, you know, you need a great founder to capitalize on the opportunity, right? Mm. So the product market fit is very important and there are certain sectors that are more well-resourced and well-positioned than others. 
But I think founder product fit is also super important, right? So I look at Tentak Anak, one of our, uh, you know, younger companies. We have a doctor, Dr. Mesty, who specializes in uh, pediatrics combined with Gary, Tokopedia, Harvard Business School, you know, who has obviously gleaned a ton of experience in Tokopedia. We have that winning combination to, to capitalize on a large market. That's the kind of things we look for. So I don't think we presuppose we know which sectors are going to be interesting. Having said that, I think, you know, there is some tools that we built and actually those tools are all, all available on our website at insignia.vc, right? And this is a, it's, it's not a joke actually, it's, it's true. You know, I used to carry a printer around in places like Vietnam and the Philippines where there's no internet access, you know, and we sometimes meet founders, we want to print term sheets, right? So, so if you go to our website now, you can actually print a term sheet, you can calculate cap tables, you can look at the market trends of both public and private companies. You can even see whether you are ESG compliant. So I think we try to provide tools for founders and they in turn find that we are useful somewhat and talk to us. That's certainly one avenue. I think the other avenue that's surprisingly a great success, much exceeded my expectation personally, is the Insignia Academy, which is, I mean, we first started, well, a year and a half or two years ago. We thought of it as, hey, just spinning our in-house training program because it really happened because we had to run classes for our analysts, right? Every Saturday morning. I remember dragging my initial cohort of analysts. <laughs> you know, like on Sunday mornings, they'll be you know, like half asleep. And we'll be walking through term sheets and how to negotiate cap tables and, you know. Right. To... A different kind of early morning walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember, you know, we'll be in our old office and we'll be like running through case studies. And sometimes we have speakers. And we thought, hey, actually, that's interesting. You know, like we should make it available for not just our analyst crop, right? But how do we make it more available for the public who wants to be investors? So, I mean, with a couple of cohorts in, this has really blossomed because, you know, we have a 7.7% acceptance rate which is more selective than Harvard Business School. And nowadays, 99% are inbound. And we, we've seen some of our alumni blossom, like one became a venture partner of a seed fund, you know, one started his own single family operation. We hired a few, a uh, couple of them joined our portfolio companies as chief of staff. And we, we, we backed a couple of companies from this program. So it's really blossomed beyond my expectation. And we're running our fourth cohort. And it amazes me how strong-knit the alumni is. And every time, there's a lot of sparks that happen between our portfolio and IBA alums. And kudos to you, Paolo. You have been a great contributor as well to the program. So you know how close-knit the alum and the current cohort is. I think back to your question on how, you know, how we find the you know, next big company, I think the founders lead us to them. Sometimes the founders don't even know they are founders until they attend an <laughs> uh, academy, sure. right? Because, you know, they could be chief of staff or heading a business unit at a big tech company. They, they, they kind of want to do something, but they don't know how to do it. Or they're not too sure whether they should do it, right? But after 12 weeks, they are crystal clear. Okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be an investor. Hey, I want to start my own thing. I want to start a new tech company. I want to join a fast-growing company. I think it gives them the confidence and the clarity and the network to mm -hmm. do that, right? And then I think for those who already know what they want to do, I think the other thing is our network of global unicorns around the world provides a very good role model. If you want to start a fintech company, for example, right? You want to talk to someone who has started a $50 billion digital bank globally. <laughs> and then turn it into the guy is like, okay, okay, maybe I can do it too. I want to do it. I don't know how to do it. Okay, maybe I can do it too. If someone always wants to start a, a sort of tech enabled club kitchen, I mean, 30 minutes with someone who runs the world's biggest hot pot chain is going to give you a lot of insights on that. So I think that's the gist of it. And I think the amazing thing is that even though IVA in particular positions itself as a VC, you know, education, and we, we talk about things from a venture capital perspective, 
But ultimately, we see a lot of different trajectories coming out of the program. As, as Ingrid mentioned, some of the alumni even come together to, to start their own companies, to start their own ventures. And we don't really force it. Like, we don't tell them, you know, you should become a founder, you should become an angel or whatnot. And they just do it out of their own volition and out of their own personal, like, self-discovery as they go through the program. So that's really interesting. And yeah, definitely excited to, to see what the fourth cohort brings. And again, like, to, to hammer down the point, I think Ingram was making VC and, you know, looking for these, like, best companies, great companies is really a a people business, finding founders, really bringing people together. And, you know, that theme started all the way back the early years of venture capital. And I think we'll continue on as, as we look forward to the next decade of, of innovation in Southeast Asia. So on that note, we'd like to thank England for coming on the show. We, we don't often have these kinds of conversations where we really talk about these big ideas, but glad to have had that time. As you said, you know, sometimes 30 minutes is all it takes. And hopefully the podcast can be that as well for our listeners. 30 minutes for them to, to get inspired and to, to start thinking about what they want to do. And yeah, looking forward to having you back on call, maybe as a co-host as well. Thanks, England. Thank you, Paulo. Thank you, Paulo. Stay on the line with us for more conversations with our founders and investors in the region. Until our next call, I am Paolo Aquino and this has been On Call with Insignia Ventures.